Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to all those who are on site and those who are online here. And thanks for sharing that story, Jeff. Uh, it's wonderful to have you and, and your, your uh, club here with us as well. It's amazing how uh, through these opportunities, it doesn't just help out an individual who is you know, in the community and brings them into contact with the church, but also it helps us to serve our community. And through that, an opportunity to build relationships teach some important leadership skills, and, uh, and through this uh, through, uh, sports ministry and karate club, we've seen many, many people then take the next step to join us on a Sunday morning, and, and even to join cl- classes like, like Alpha and small groups and things like that, and so it's, it, it's, it's fascinating to see how these dots all connect, and we can uh, build relationships and ultimately help people find a relationship, a deeper relationship with Jesus, so we're excited about that. Thank you for sharing that story. Well, today, uh, we're kind of into the second week of Advent. And for a lot of us, kind of the busyness is starting to pile up for Christmas, I'm going to imagine. And I'm going to guess that we're into the preparations and into the shopping for Christmas Day. And along with that goes one question that I'm pretty certain that you've all asked somebody or you've already been asked at least once. And that question is, what do you want for Christmas? Everyone asked that question already? Yeah, I've been asked that multiple times. Now, there's a few ways that we answer that question. There's the classic answer that I always end up giving, and that is, I don't don't know. (laughs) I don't know what I want for Christmas. It was so much easier when I was a kid, because I would just simply wait for the Sears catalog to arrive in the mail, and then I would flip to the back of the toy section, and I would circle what I wanted, and that was my wish list for Christmas. They even helped you out by calling, remember what it was called? It was called a wish book, right? It, even, it was your wish book. It even helped you out that way. That's how I tend to answer that question and many, many others. Who else answers it that way? I don't know what I want. Yeah, lots of us. There's the other people who didn't raise their hands who are probably on the other side of this question. When they're asked, what do you want for Christmas? They've been ready since July, right? They've got a list. It is typed. It is itemized. It is color-coded, laminated, ready to send to you because they are stoked that it's Christmas, where are our planners? Who's got their list planned weeks in advance? Couple, couple of, there's less of them, right? Most of us aren't quite sure what we want. Well, in our family, we have the same thing. We have a mixture of those. And the wish list in my family tends to constitute things that you would typically find wrapped and placed under a tree. And so on the wish list, you'll find things a little bit larger, sometimes a little more expensive, more towards kind of the fun factor type of things end up on there, and they're the answer to the question, what do you want for Christmas? Now, I won't tell you what we're getting the kids for Christmas this year, because that's kind of wreck it for them, but for examples, in past years, you know, Josh had asked for like a Leon Dreisaitl jersey, and so that would be the type of thing we'd get. Uh, Sam, our son Sam, asked for a Samsung watch to go with his phone, and uh, our daughter Kaylina one year asked for like a Kate Spade Disney purse. Some of the things a little bit more pricey that you'd wrap under the tree, kind of leaning towards the fun factor type thing. But in our family, those aren't the only gifts that we receive. You see, before we open those gifts that are under the tree, in our family on Christmas morning, we open our stockings. Okay, now these stockings, they tend to be things that are a little bit simpler. They're wrapped still, but they're wrapped in sort of a more unassuming way, in a more unassuming type packages. And these things that you find in your stocking, they tend to be more of an answer to the question of what do you need for Christmas? Anybody else do stockings? Yeah, yeah. So of those of us who do stockings, what types of things do you find in stockings? Crisp oranges. We always get oranges in there, right? Because you've got to weight the foot of the sock, 
right? So you got the orange. What else do we find in stockings? Socks. Yes. What else? Toothbrush. Did I hear underwear? Yes, right. You're going to find oranges. You're going to find body wash. You're going to find socks. You're going to find underwear. For some reason, all the women get those little pads, those little, those little makeup pads, you know, those sleeves that you get. For some reason, those end up in there too because apparently they're great for removing makeup. But these are the things that we need, right? Now, one year, I suggested to our family that perhaps we should stop doing stockings <laughs> because that's what happened. That's exactly what, I thought maybe we should stop doing stockings because the family's getting a little bigger. Like the kids all have, have partners now, and so we have to include them, and they all get a stocking, and there's, the mantle's only so big. And, and it starts to get more expensive, and I thought maybe they've outgrown that. Well, you would have thought I suggested we shave our heads when I mentioned this to them. The uproar, you can't not do stockings. And you know it's serious when they use a double negative. You can't not do stockings. That's the best part of Christmas. Now, I knew they were overstating that a little bit because it wasn't the, you know, maybe the best part of Christmas, but I also knew that I was wrong assuming that they didn't matter. And I found out that for our family, one of the big parts of defining Christmas are not just the things that we find on our wish list. And I hope that's true for us too, especially those of us who have a relationship with Jesus at this time of year, that our definition of Christmas would not simply be defined by the things that are on our wish list, the things that we want. Because amidst all those things, though let's be honest, we're probably going to get, I hope that in this Christmas, first and foremost is defined for you by the very things that we all need. See, and even by outward appearances, sometimes the things we need are simpler, a little more humbly wrapped, and more of an unassuming package. Because if you remember, that's, after all, how Jesus arrived. He arrived born of a humble means and a humble family. He was wrapped in strips of cloth, and he was laid in a feeding trough in a manger. He, he arrived in a rather unexpected manner. He revealed the love of God in a countercultural way, and he provided salvation in a way that all people need. Uh, but if you follow the story of his life, while he provided salvation that all people need, he did it in a way that nobody even asked for. You see, for many people then, and many people even still now, Jesus may not be the Savior that they had on their wish list, he may not be the Savior that people wanted. But he was, and he still is, the Savior that we all need. And because he's the Savior we all need, he is also the hope that we all need. And this is something that we need to wrestle with. This is something we need to be mindful of. This is something that every person who has ever had an encounter with Jesus, whether we're talking back in the first century in the ancient Near East, or we're talking still today, something that every person has been faced with, even some of the greats in the Bible, like, like John the Baptist that we were speaking about last week. And we're going to continue to talk a little bit about this week. You see, John had to wrestle with this a little bit. Do you remember John's story? He was part of the Christmas story and in, in a way that's unassuming as well. You see, John's birth was announced by the same angel that would later announce the birth of Jesus to Mary. But when John's, when, when John's birth was announced, it also came with an announcement of his purpose, that he was to be the forerunner announcing the arrival of the Messiah. 
And when we meet John in the scriptures, we find that he is this eccentric messenger in the wilderness that people are flocking to go see and hear. If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to last week's message online through westmeadows.org. But he was in the wilderness telling people that the Messiah was about to appear and that they needed to prepare themselves to receive him when he did appear. And that day finally arrived. The day arrives when Jesus appears on the scene and he comes to the Jordan where John has been preaching and baptizing. And when John sees him coming, he declares to everybody who's there in in John chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the guy I was telling you about. This is the one I've been telling you to prepare yourselves for. This is the one. I said, a man's going to come after me who is going to surpass me because he was before me. When we look at John's life and we look at this proclamation of who Jesus is, we can see that John is all in on Jesus. He's all in. He has predicted his coming, he's announced his arrival, and now he is pointing people to start following Jesus. And many did. Many believed, John, that that Jesus was the Messiah. They they, they followed his encouragement. They prepared their hearts and they put their trust and their hope in Jesus. And and they considered John to be a prophet. He was very influential, very popular with the people. But even though he was having this great success in ministry and this great popularity amongst the masses, not everyone liked John. You see, John had a nemesis. And his, his biggest nemesis was this woman named Herodias. Now, Herodias, to explain who she is, Herodias was the wife of King Herod. Now, before Herodias was married to Herod, she was actually married to Herod's brother, Philip, who is the Tetrarch of Galilee. And Herodias kind of conspired to achieve a higher standing because she wasn't satisfied being the, the wife of kind of a regional leader when she could be the wife of a king. And so she conspired. She told Herod, hey, if you will divorce your wife, I'll divorce my husband, and I'll marry you, and then, and then you can be king, and I'll be your queen. Now, as immoral as this scheme is, to make it worse, this little homewrecker was also Herod's niece at the same time. So, if you think your Christmas dinners have drama, imagine when this family got together, and this is all transpiring. Well, what's the relevance of this? It's this. John the Baptist learns that this has taken place. And what's John's thing? Well, his thing is kind of call people to repent, to call people to confess their sins, to turn back towards the right way that God has put before them. That's kind of his thing. And so he takes it upon himself to to take Herod and Herodias to task and saying, this isn't right. According to Jewish law, according to God's ways, this marriage should not exist. In in fact, it's incestuous in, in two ways. Well, Herodias doesn't like this. Because her standing, her whole scheme is threatened by the message of John. And so she wants John killed. But Herod likes John. See, Herod knows that he's a, he's a righteous man. He, he knows that the people like him. And so personally and politically, it doesn't really do Herod any favors by killing John. And besides, he likes to listen to John. John, John has good stories, and, and it kind of convicts him when John speaks. Not, not enough to change his life and, you know, in you know, get on the right path, but he likes listening to John. So he ends up throwing John in prison, in part to protect John from his wife, but also to appease his wife. And so we pick up this story now in Matthew chapter 11. And if you want to follow along, in Matthew chapter 11, you'll find in the Pew Bible on page 791. 
And John has been in prison for about a year. And he knows there's a pretty good chance that he's never going to get out. He also knows that there's a pretty good chance he's going to lose his life. It's really just a matter of time until he's killed, some way, somehow. And that's going to cause a person to reflect, you think. It's going to cause a person to take inventory of their life a little bit. Like, what will I be known for? How will I be remembered? Did I do enough? And for John the Baptist, who had a very specific and divine calling, he's also taking his inventory, reflecting, and probably thinking to himself, did I get it right? Was Jesus really the one that I was supposed to wait for? Supposed to proclaim? The the one I was supposed to point people towards? And we thought he got it right. But what he keeps hearing about Jesus doesn't match what he expected, what he wanted in a Messiah. And so starting in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2, John sends his, a couple of his followers to go see Jesus. And they said this, When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to Jesus and asked him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we wait for somebody else? Hmm. There's two ways we can understand this question. One way, he might be asking, Are you really the Messiah? Like, like did John get it wrong? And if that's the nature of the question that's being asked, then, then that means that John is having doubts. He's asking a question based upon doubts. Another way that this can be viewed is, is these followers of John come to Jesus and they say, you know, Jesus, time's running out. What are you waiting for? Come on, let's get at it. Let's get this thing going. And if that's the nature of the question, it comes from John having unmet expectations. I have expectations, things that I want in the Messiah, and he's not doing it. If he's the guy, come on, let's get it going. Regardless of how it's being asked, both are evidence that John is losing hope in Jesus. He's not getting what he wants in his Messiah. But what did John want? How would he define a successful Savior? Well, he'd actually do it similar to how other people in the time of Jesus would define a successful Savior. You see, we can look through Scripture and we can see, for example, the crowds who were constantly around Jesus were always astonished by his teaching, by, by his miracles. They were challenged, they, they, they were inspired by how he challenged authorities. And they saw in him an opportunity for personal gain. We see an example of this in John chapter 6, where there's thousands of people who have come to hear Jesus teach. And as he's teaching them, The disciples come and say, Jesus, you should send these people away. It's getting late. They're going to get hungry, and there's no way we can feed them. And Jesus says, well, you you give them something to eat. Disciples think, well, how can we feed thousands of people? And Jesus says, go find out what you have. And they go and they collect a few loaves of bread and a few fish, and they come back to Jesus and say, that's that's all we have. It's not nearly enough for all of these people. And Jesus takes it, and he prays, and he in the baskets of this bread and fish, they multiply. And he tells the disciples to go feed the people. And they go feed 5,000 men plus women and children through these few loaves and fish. This amazing miracle takes place. And at the end of it, in, in John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, they were about to come and make him king by force. <laughs> you can see why. They're like, this guy is wise. He can heal people. He can materialize bread with a snap of a finger. He's the king. There's nobody who measures up. He is our king. We'll never hunger again. Some of the crowd, many of the crowd saw personal gain in him. 
the disciples saw something else. See, they believed he was the Messiah, that he would be king, but he would also rule on a throne like a military and political leader, kind of like King David. It was even foretold that, that, that the Messiah would sit on the throne of David. And, and what did David do? Well, he had victory over foreign nations. David was able to establish a strong, independent Jewish nation, and, and that's what they expect. And so we see this in Mark chapter 10. When James and John are walking along with the other disciples and Jesus, and they, they come up to Jesus and they go, hey, you got a second? John and I were talking, and we have an idea. We're thinking that when you get to Jerusalem and you sit on your throne, you're going to have to figure out who's going to be the closest. We're the closest to you, Jesus. Like, like we're, we're brothers, right? So what if one of us was on the left, probably me, and one of us was on the right, probably my brother, but you can decide who, Jesus, but we want to sit in power and authority with you when you come into your kingdom. See, the disciples thought the end result was power and authority, in particular for them. What did John the Baptist think? Well, he had dedicated his life to calling people's sins out, to, to calling them to repent and warning them of the imminent judgment of unrepentant Israel if they didn't do so. And now John is in a prison and he's thinking to himself, where is it? Where's the judgment? Where's the justice? For that matter, where's my justice? I have faithfully served Jesus all of these years. And if he is indeed the one, where is my justice? When will I be released? When will judgment fall upon Herod and Herodias? Where's my justice? See, everyone knew the, the power that Jesus had, the, the miracles, the teaching, the authority over demons. Everybody wanted him as king, but on their terms. Terms where it will make my life easier. It will be my political material, a military leader, and I'll feel safe and proud of my nation again. Or he'll finally give me the justice I deserve over my enemies. And when John and the others have these expectations in mind and they look at the job that Jesus is doing, from their perspective, Jesus is blowing it. He's blowing this whole Messiah thing. And it's enough to make them ask the question, are you the one? Are you the one? Or should we wait for somebody else? See, we can take a glance at something or somebody in this world, and we've probably all done this before, where we take a glance at them, but we don't truly see the depth of, of the person or of the situation in front of us. We sometimes have a surfacey view of these things. We don't always see the depth that exists. When I was thinking about that this week, it reminded me back in, uh, I think it started back in the 80s. Do you remember those, those of who are old enough to remember, do you remember those magic eye prints that used to exist where it's like a, a, a kind of an odd two-dimensional picture? But then if you look closer, there's actually like a three-dimensional image behind it. Anybody remember these things? Thank you. Thank you for raising your hands because I asked some people around the office and they thought I was insane. Okay. Thank you. I'm not. <laughs> I remember being in Sears when I was a little guy and they had like this huge rack of these things in the crowd. You couldn't get near them because you're all just staring at them, right? So if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, here's, here's an example of one, which you can put up there for you. And, and the way this works, if you've never seen this before, the way this works is you kind of stare at the center of the image you allow your eyes to go a little blurry and try to kind of look through the image. And if something starts to pop off the screen in a three-dimensional way, start, start to try and focus upon that. You should see all your faces right now. This is, 
Anyways, it may not work here because of this, you know, the resolution and the lights and stuff, uh, but feel free to give it a try if you want to. If you're watching online, unfortunately, you're missing out. You have to come to see us in person for the full experience. But <laughs> I'll leave it up for a minute if you promise to keep listening to me. <laughs> okay? So, see, I think hope is like this at times, where we see life in this two-dimensional perspective. We, we can see a two-dimensional view of our situations and of people and, and of God, and, and when we look at it from that perspective, it's, it's just kind of chaos with, without any meaning. But if we, if we look deeper, if we look deeper with eyes to see God's presence in the midst of life, We can start to see him, and we can start to see hope in him, even if it's obscured at first. Anybody see anything yet? No, kind of. Some people kind of. Okay, you know, if if you see something, if you see something, what what it actually is is a giant light bulb in the middle with like lightning bolts on the sides. It may not work in here. I left. I put it up on the pew portal though. So if you download the pew portal, the images in there, you can look at it at home later on on your own there as well. Uh, but, but see, this is essentially what, what Jesus does when he responds to John the Baptist's disciples. This is, in essence, what he does for them. He takes their two-dimensional words that they've read on the scroll that have informed their expectations of the Messiah, and he helps them see the 3D reality of those prophecies fulfilled right before their eyes. And so verse 4 and 5, Jesus says to them, Go back and report to John what you see and what you have heard. The blind have received sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. See, in these words, Jesus is referencing several prophecies that the prophet Isaiah gave centuries earlier about the Messiah. And he is claiming to say, you've read these in a two-dimensional manner upon the scrolls. I am the 3D representation that fulfills these before your very eyes. Isaiah 35 talks about how when the Messiah comes, he will heal the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. And when these people are healed, they will leap and shout for joy. Isaiah 61 talks about how when the Messiah comes, he would bring with him the good news that is for all people. He would preach good news to the poor. He would bind up the brokenhearted and he would proclaim the Lord's favor to the nations. And as Jesus takes Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61 and he connects them, he's connecting the power of the physical and the spiritual healing together in one that can only exist in the Messiah. And we see this in Scripture as well in in Mark chapter 2. Remember the story in Mark chapter 2 where Jesus heals the man who is paralyzed. But before he can heal him, his friends have to bring him into the house where Jesus is teaching, but they can't get in, so they cut a hole in the roof. And they, they lower the man down through the roof to get to where Jesus is. And when Jesus sees this happening and the man being lowered down to him, what does it say in Mark chapter 2? It says he looked at this man who was paralyzed on this mat and he said he saw his faith and he said to him, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Pharisees who are around listening to this are like, well, who is he to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. And so Jesus responds to them and says, which is easier? For someone to say, your sins are forgiven? Or for someone to say, get up and take your mat and walk? Meaning, both are impossible for a mere man. Neither can possibly truly say your sins are forgiven. One cannot possibly say, take up and walk and take your mat. But then Jesus says, so that you know that I have the authority to forgive sins on earth. 
He then says to the man, take up your mat, walk, and go home. And he brings together the physical and the spiritual healing and the proclamation of the good news to all people. See, as Jesus points to to this in his life and his ministry, he gives us three-dimensional experience of their two-dimensional expectations. And John the Baptist's followers would recognize this. They, they would have seen this. They would have realized that Jesus was claiming to fulfill all of the prophecies. Maybe not in the way that they expected. Maybe not in the way that the world wanted. But he was doing it in the way that the world needed. And he was helping them understand that they needed to trust in him. But not just in him, but in how he revealed it to them. And then he cautions all people, including us. He cautions them in verse 6. When he finishes this message, and he says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now the Greek for this phrase here is, Blessed is anyone who does not take offense. Blessed is anyone who was not scandalized. Blessed is anyone who, do, who does not lose hope by who God is revealed to be. That's a fair warning to all of us, because just like John the Baptist and just like his followers, it speaks to the human nature that exists within all of us that we're so prone to. When does this happen for us? Well, I think there's three examples of where all of us have this human nature where we're prone to experience this. And the first one, the first one, the most common one that I, that I encounter is when people's experiences do not match their expectations of God. We've all experienced this in other ways. I remember we first moved to Edmonton, and coming from a smaller town to Edmonton, you get to try all sorts of new things. And one of the new things you get to try is like new restaurants. And so Nadine and I had never been to a Kelsey's before, and we saw a Kelsey's near our home. We thought, hey, this looks like the type of place we might enjoy eating. And so we were excited to go into what we thought was going to be sort of a, you know, sort of a, you know, a higher-level casual dining-type place. And we had heard some good things about it. But we got there. And the service was terrible. The tables and the floors were filthy. The food was cold and, and kind of rubbery. We wrote off the whole chain. Like we never went, it was just that one restaurant, but we never went to a Kelsey's ever again. And, and it may have just been that one restaurant. Probably not because they're not around anymore. But, but we wrote off the whole chain because of that one experience. Our, our expectations did not match our experiences and so we just... We're done with Kelsey's. Some people do the same thing with God at times. Whereas we mentioned, people have their wish lists of what the Messiah, of what God will look like. He'll bring immediate justice. He'll, he'll give me power. I'll re- regain power over my life. I'll, I'll have an easier life because of this. And when it doesn't materialize in the way that they want, it leads to frustration. And, and some will even find themselves asking, are you really the one? Or should I place my hope in somebody else? Another time that this happens in, in people's lives is the time when they stumble, become disillusioned with God, is, is when a person's agendas and motives don't match God's. I, I've seen this often in the counseling and mentoring of people over the years that I've, I've been a pastor. And, and it shows up sometimes, and I've, I've, I've been guilty of this in my own life too, where, where we have these personal goals, which are not bad or wrong, but sometimes we position them in an inappropriate way. So we have these personal goals things that we want to achieve, things that we want to become. And then because we're good Christian boys and girls, we, we add on an aspect about how God will benefit when that is realized in our lives. 
And we add that on because it's what good Christians do, but also we want God to bless it because that'll give us a better chance of making it. I, I've talked to numerous people over the years who, who wanted to start a business and would work hard and, and, and make a lot of money. Nothing wrong with making a lot of money because that would also give them the chance to give a lot of money. Make me rich, Lord, so that I can make others lives easier through that. Make me successful, Lord, because then I'll be a successful businessman in the market and people will see success equated with you when it's equated with me. These, these sorts of ideas. And then they come talk to me as a pastor and they, they seek my counsel. And the first question I usually have for them is, well, whose idea was this? Was this your idea or was, was this God's idea? Whose kingdom are you trying to build? Are you trying to build your kingdom or are you seeking to build God's? I've talked to people in the past. I remember one lady I spoke with who was unhappily married. She wanted to leave her husband, but she wanted to do it in a kind and considerate way because she wanted to display godly characteristics as she did this. And she thought, I will represent Jesus well while I leave my husband. And then she came to talk to me in asking for my blessing over this plan. And my response was, it sounds like you're trying to do your own will in God's name. You see, when we, when we do these things, and we're all guilty of these things to some degree in some fashion in our lives, when, when the plan then doesn't go as we had hoped, our response isn't to take inventory and go, okay, where did I misstep? The, the continued natural response is to go, God, what are you doing wrong? And the whole time God's saying, don't bring me into this. That was you, boo. You, you, you do that. And there's a third time that I, I've experienced this as I've journeyed my own life and as I've pastored others. It's when a person is just simply hard-hearted towards God. And they say to themselves, I don't need a king because I already am. It's not open to their need. If they're not open to the reality of who Jesus is, quite often that's because they're threatened by who he is. They're threatened by it because they don't, they, they don't want to believe the evidence. They don't want to investigate the evidence because if it turns out to be true, it threatens their status, their position as king and lord of their own lives. Like Herodias, who tried to cancel John the Baptist, who tried to cancel his message because she was threatened by him. She continued the path that she was on. And she did. And she was also successful in eventually taking John's life as well to protect her position, to, to protect her hard heart. And here's the sad reality, is that she didn't realize this, and many missed this as well, but, but John wasn't trying to make her life miserable. <laughs> he was actually trying to save her. Because his message may not have been a message that she wanted, but it was the very message that they needed in that particular time. And because there's this nature, this human nature that leads us to, to become dis disillusioned with God at times, and, and Jesus says, blesses anyone who does not stumble on account of learning who I truly am. This is why it's so important for us at Christmas to sing and to celebrate what the angels proclaim to the shepherds. That in Luke 2 it says, do not be afraid. Do not be disillusioned. Do not be surprised by what's about to take place. But today, we bring you good news. This news is going to cause great joy for all people. Because today in the town of David, in a way you didn't expect, in a way that nobody maybe even wanted, but today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is your Messiah. He is the Lord. He is the one who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of Mary in such a humble, simple, unassuming way.
His name is Jesus. He was named Jesus because his name means that he will save his people from their sins. He will be the son of the Most High. And that word Most High comes from the phrase El Elyon, which means God Most High. Because he will have the divine qualities of his Father. He will truly be God with us, the mingling of flesh and spirit, the embodiment of God's promises and the hope for all people. He will sit on the throne of his father David. Mary and Joseph are both from the line of David. And there was a prophecy that said that one day, we pro- God promised that one day the Messiah would sit upon that throne and it would be an eternal victory that he would bring with him. And as he sits upon the throne of his father David, that he would reign over all people, over all of God's people, that through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection, he would prove himself to be worthy, prove himself to be the one who has the authority to rule in power. And as he rules in power from the throne of his father David as the son of the Most High, the one Jesus who was going to save all people, he would establish his kingdom. And his kingdom will be established, and it begins now. It exists today, and his kingdom has no end. What does all of this tell us? This tells us that Jesus is king, that he is worthy to be the king of our lives. He's worthy to be the Lord of our lives, not as a political, a military, not as a, as a king who's here to make our life easy in a two-dimensional perspective of who God is, but to be Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior of all people's lives in a three-dimensional way that they can know, that they can experience him today, because he has always been king. And he's setting up his kingdom where his authority and his benefits will be available to all in the form of salvation. A salvation that we can experience now, today, in today's events, in today's circumstances and events, in today's life, but also in eternity for all of those who will ally themselves with him. And for many people, then and still now, that's not the save that they had on their wish list. Not the one that they wanted. Because to acknowledge him in that fashion would be to challenge our expectations of who God is. It would challenge our own agendas. It would challenge our abilities to be our own kings and queens. But we've tried life that way, and it doesn't work in this life, and I guarantee you it will not work in the life to come. That is why Jesus is the Savior that we all need. And he is the Savior that I hope we all want as well. But we must respond to him. We must ally ourselves with him in those things. We must choose to respond, to acknowledge that we have this need, to acknowledge that we want him in our lives, and then to accept him into our lives. And we have an opportunity to do that today. We have the opportunity, wherever you may be in your relationship with Jesus today, whether you are curious but not yet committed, whether you are are committed and growing whether you are committed, but you are now striving to become captivated and committed and start cultivating new relationships with Jesus. Wherever you find yourself in that pathway, we have a chance to respond today. We can do so where you sit right now. If you do not have a relationship with Christ, you're curious about these things, but you want to make that commitment, you can do so by simply receiving him through a prayer in your heart and affirming that. For others who have made that choice at some point in the past, we have the opportunity to reaffirm that in a moment through communion. You see, John the Baptist's followers were satisfied with the answers that Jesus gave. They went back and they went back reaffirming to John that Jesus indeed was the Messiah. But we also learn in chapter 7, in verse 7, that there was a large crowd of people who were there who also had to have an opportunity to respond. 
Jesus wants them to arrive at the same conclusion. And so he asked them about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? What was missing inside of you that needed to be fulfilled, that drew you into the wilderness? Did you go out there to see a reed swaying in the wind, some sort of weak, mundane message? No. The only thing that will fill that emptiness inside of us is a strong, convicting message. Did you go to the wilderness to see a, a man dressed in fine clothes and living in a palace? No. John lived a life and calls us to respond to a life that is hard, representative of hard work of repentance. He asked them, did you go into the wilderness to see a prophet? Yes, you did. Because you were seeking God. That emptiness inside you was a hole that was left by the absence of God in your life. And yes, and John was that prophet and so much more. Because John was the one who was chosen to predict, to announce, and to point people to the Savior. And so as Jesus calls all people at that time and even calls to us today, not only does he affirm the ministry of John, but the echoes of John's message carry down to us in our need to respond to Jesus as our hope and our Savior. It says in verse 11 there that among those who are born of women, no one has ever risen up who is greater than John. Yet whoever is the least of these in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does that mean? That has incredible meaning for us today, especially as we approach communion. See, this is a declaration as to why Jesus is the hope that we all need. And it has nothing to do with us. See, John's life was taken him before Jesus would give his life. That means that John lived in a time, lived and died in a time under the old covenant, under the old promise. Where John, when his time came, he had to stand upon his own faith and his own righteousness. And we get the sense from Jesus' words that that was sufficient at that time for that promise. But all who were to come after John were able to stand on a new promise. Were able to stand on a new covenant that we find in the New Testament. A, a promise that was made through the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross and upon his victory at the resurrection. And that's what we come towards at communion. We come to these elements that celebrate that righteousness of Christ that we can stand on. The bread symbolic of Jesus' body which was broken. The cup symbolic of his blood which poured out as he gave his life so that we could receive eternal life. And making him worthy of being the Lord and Savior in our lives so that we can become identified with him. And therefore not stand on our own righteousness as all those who before him were forced to do. But we can stand upon the greater righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So we have the chance to respond. If you have never accepted Christ and said, thank you, Jesus, for this gift of forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus. You are worthy to be the Lord of my life. Thank you, Jesus. I need your hope in my life. We can do that now. Right where you sit through a prayer, come talk to us afterwards or online, you can click the prayer button. But those of us who are here, we also have the chance to reaffirm that in our lives. There may be ways that we have wandered off track a little bit. We still believe, we still hold a faith, but the questions, the doubts, the unmet expectations have caused us to question what we're experiencing. We have a chance to reaffirm that Jesus is the one that we need. He is the hope that we need. So I encourage you to do that now. Just take a moment of reflection, and then I'll join you at the table in just a moment.